2: That is douglas.ca slash This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash to help us treat addiction and build hope. Free, no-obligation life insurance checkup. You can compare quotes and apply online in minutes. I remember the first time I ever saw someone walk into a classroom and open fire. It was Leonardo DiCaprio in the 1996 movie The Basketball Diaries. The scene was an illustration of his character's violent fantasy. But 1996 was also the year that school shootings became a regular part of reality. On February 2nd, 1996, a 14-year-old boy in Washington State opened fire on his algebra class. The media reported everything they could find out about him. They paid particular attention to the fact that during the attack, he dramatically quoted a line from a Stephen King novel. Before the week was done, there was another shooting, which many considered to have been inspired by the first. Then another one before the month was through. Then two more the next month. According to an article in Psychology Today, these were copycat shootings, And more than one of the other killers also cited the same Stephen King novel as inspiration. As the theory goes, mass shootings are contagious, and that 1996 killer from Washington State was patient zero. The media spreads the virus, both through the news and through entertainment, with fictional depictions of imaginary mass shootings blending together with salacious news reports. By 2019, this contagion hit pandemic levels, and there were more mass shootings in the United States than there were days in the year, according to the nonprofit Gun Violence Archive. And that is why many American news outlets don't name killers anymore. Leaving out the name of the criminal in a news report about a crime was once unthinkable. But journalists did change the way that we report on suicides to prevent contagion. And these days, consciously omitting the name of mass shooters has become the newsroom norm in the U.S., according to the Poynter Institute for Media Studies. Which is why it seemed reasonable enough last month, after the deadliest mass shooting in Canadian history, for the Prime Minister to tell us how to do our jobs.
1: I want to ask the media to avoid mentioning the name and showing the picture of the person involved. Do not give him the gift of infamy. Let us instead focus all our intention and attention on the lives we lost and the families and friends who grieve.
2: Don't give him the gift of infamy, Trudeau said to the media. Don't publish his name. Don't show his picture. But we did. Here at Canadaland, we included the name of the killer in our coverage, and many other news sources included both his name and his picture. But the coverage, writ large, was kind of different than it had been in the past, after other shootings. The killer's name and image didn't lead most stories. There was like a conscious effort to not make him famous. And though there were some stories trying to provide a biography of him— focusing on his interests and personality. Oh, he was such a soft-spoken neighbor, minded his own business. We never saw this coming. That stuff was out there, but it was muted. Clearly, we here in the Canadian news media are working some stuff out, stuff that American news outlets have had, sadly, many, many occasions to figure their way through. Well, now it's our turn to catch up. And whatever we've learned from this last incident, we will almost certainly have another opportunity to put it in practice in the future and try to get it all right. But what is right? My guest today has been trying to figure that out for the last 10 years. Media researcher Romaine Smith-Fullerton, along with her colleague Maggie Jones-Patterson, wrote a book about crime coverage practices around the world titled, Murder in Our Midst, Comparing the Ethics of Crime Coverage in a Globalized Age. It will be published this fall but Professor Romaine Smith-Fullerton joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jenny Keefe, Matthew Butler, Jen Murphy, Chris Emery, Carson Chu, Scott Anderson, Wade McCauley, and Andrew Collins. Hello, hello, my name is Andrew Collins and I'm a history teacher in Toronto,
1: Ontario. Um, I listened to Canada Land because one day I opened up my podcast app and realized I listened to mostly American content uh, and not enough Canadian stuff. So a podcast called Canada Land seemed like the best place to start. Since then I have fallen in love with the show and while I may not totally agree with Jesse all the time I would still love to sit down and have a beer with him. So stay safe everyone and I'll leave you with something I tell my students frequently. This too shall pass. This
2: episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand. To help Cam H treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than two hundred thousand Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there. A lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash to claim this offer. Last thing I wanna promote before today's show is our own podcast, Oppo. There is so much going on in the world right now that it is easy to take your eye off the ball and forget the fact that right here in Canada, the political machinery keeps on churning in a way that has less transparency, that is going under the radar like never before, less opposition, less accountability, Oppo is still publishing a fun, accessible, and informed conversation about Canadian politics, and you should be listening to this show now more than ever. Check out Jen Gerson and Sandy Garasino as they inform and opine about Canadian politics. Subscribe to Oppo wherever you get your podcasts. How do you like to be called? Uh, Should I call you uh, Professor Smith Fullerton? What's your preference?
3: Oh, call me Romaine. That sounds awfully formal. I mean, I am an associate professor, and I I am a doctor, but I'll probably call you Jesse, so I think you should call me Romaine.
2: Excellent. What specifically have you been researching for this past, I don't know, 10 years or so?
3: For the past 10 years, along with an American colleague and friend of mine, Maggie Jones Patterson, who is a journalism professor at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, I've been working on a very big project that compares how journalists make decisions about covering crime in 10 advanced westernized democracies.
2: We, we are speaking just uh, just weeks after the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. I'm just wondering, in a general sense, what your impression of the media coverage of the Nova Scotia shootings was.
3: I was really surprised about one particular aspect of the media coverage and the discussion around the media coverage And that was that there even was a discussion about how it is that Canadian media make decisions around naming and identifying accused persons, and in this case, uh, the Nova Scotia shooter in particular. So the first time I happened to to notice anything at all, there was a, a real stink when the Globe and Mail had put up a headline that offended a large number of people. And, you know, I was kind of shocked about that.
2: The line that offended was he had a passion for policing, which we discussed uh, on on this podcast in in the past. Now that's egregious and it was decried by many. The word passion feels almost like you're writing a dating profile. Uh, what, what, what are his, what is it, what are his interests or the way that we humanize, you know, in other places there was coverage talking about, you know, the, the usual trope of, oh, he was so quiet and gentle and neighbors didn't see it coming, telling the story of he was a regular person, just like you or me and who gets afforded that sort of coverage and who doesn't.
3: Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think part of what offended people so much about that headline was the long-standing frame that what's newsworthy here is who the shooter was and who this dude is? And then there was also a lot of comments being made about whether media coverage should be naming the accused person and whether photographs should be be run. And then not long after that, our prime minister had made a comment specifically asking that Canadian media not name or show the perpetrator's photograph. Uh, and then not long after that, I actually, I think it was the same day. It would have been Wednesday evening. I was tuning into The National and I noticed that they ran three or four stories without naming the perpetrator. And then the host made a comment that maybe we've noticed out there in viewerland that we're not naming the, the perpetrator. And the reason that we're doing this is we're trying to uh, not glorify and not glamorize him. And we're only going to say his name here at CBC when it's important for the the context or the, the content of the story. And the next story was a piece specifically about the background of the shooter, and it was by Thomas Daigle. And somewhere in the middle of that television story, he mentioned once the perpetrator's name, but it was really smooth. It wasn't really drawing attention to it. It just kind of glided over. And then I think within a day or so, I saw a column in the Toronto Star and a bunch of other media commentary Uh, saying things like, despite a lot of citizens and our prime minister requesting that media not name or show photographs of the perpetrator, here's why we do what we do. And here are the ways in which we're being responsible journalists and thinking about this. And I thought, what a surprise.
2: Do you think that this was prompted because the prime minister asked us to? I mean, I, I bristled a little bit at being told what to cover, what to focus on, what not to focus on, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, 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 I felt a little bit of like stay in your lane, especially when it was so, uh, it wasn't merely uh, the prime minister telling us uh, to not give him the gift of infamy. And I think it's something that we heard before um, from the prime minister of New Zealand, but actually saying we need to put all of our focus on the victims. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I, mm-hmm. I guess I guess the implication is none of our focus uh, which actually goes beyond "don't name him," like do not even focus on him. Seems to be what the yeah. prime minister was telling us.
3: Yeah, I think it was different, but I I don't know that I would say that it was all a media reaction to the prime minister's comments. And to be fair, I don't think I could think of a journalist or a journalism professor who didn't bristle when Trudeau said, "This is what you should do." I mean, part of the job of journalists is to keep an eye on power, including Prime Minister Trudeau, and I can't imagine. Really, that in all seriousness, he thought that that journalists would just follow that. I think there's been a rise in uh, a lot of sensitivity, rightful sensitivity, about how it is we cover mass shootings in particular, because there are victims, and we do now have research that shows that, that a couple of things. We have media research that shows, first of all, that journalistic decisions can affect copycat, contagion imitative behavior, if you like, and that's one aspect of that. But there's also a lot of research that shows those coverage decisions can re-traumatize victims, can further traumatize families and communities. So I think for a while, because there have been movements, particularly in the United States, um, there was a, a movement called No Notoriety, which was started by the parents of a young guy who was killed in that 2012 theater shooting. Uh, and they were basically a lobby group that was relying on reputable research to suggest that not naming and not showing photographs, but still giving the other details of the story, could still educate people about what was happening, but encourage less imitative behavior.
2: You mentioned some of the fundamentals there in journalism of um, holding the powerful to account. There's there's maybe even a, a, a a broader fundamental or a more fundamental fundamental, which is that reporters tell you who, what, where, when, and how. And right. so while we can listen to the prime minister ask us as journalists, don't give him the gift of infamy as if our decisions are about, well, do we are we going to give that gift to this deceased shooter or are we going to deny that gift? But to get there, we first have to kind of skip over the basic thing that we do. Like the fir- it's the first well, one think in the list. It who? Is, you know something happened. It who did Well it, it is you
3: know? a who. Yeah. It is a who. Um but I would actually be more general in what I think the primary responsibility that journalists here in Canada and in the United States and in Great Britain and Ireland told me and my and my co author, and that was that they feel their primary obligation is a duty to inform. And journalists here and in, in like-minded countries don't want to be seen as acting as sieves for information. Um, they recognize that they don't own that information. And I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not defending anybody. I don't have a, a dog in this fight, if you will. But I, but I would say that in other countries, the name doesn't matter so much as maybe some of the other specifics around the who. So can we encapsulate everything we need to know by naming the guy? I don't know. Maybe that's a conversation we need to have.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I think there's also just uh, to, to whatever extent we consider ourselves the public's representative. Like, why do we have public courtrooms when somebody is accused of breaking the law? There is this, I guess, a, a concept in the West that that, that you, you stand before your community. You stand in public and, you ha- and that's for the benefit of the accused as much as it is uh, for the community's sake. And
3: absolutely, absolutely. Our, Our system is built from an English tradition, which is that justice is not just to be done, but to be seen to be done. And it is a public forum, and you have to make a public accounting. But I think we would be negligent not to know that there is such a thing as trial by media, there is such a, you know, a casting of aspersions. So here in Canada, and in and in the other countries that that belong to what we call the watchdog model, which is the United States, Great Britain, Ireland, and us, we are descended from a a tradition where we believe in, in the responsibility of the individual, and we believe in a kind of justice where you have to account for yourself. And we also believe that while some people may be hurt by publicity or naming um, that is a, a risk we're prepared to take because the the other option would be secret trials and possibly secret imprisonments, and we come from a history where where we know that can happen, and we so we we pick between what I guess our system has decided is a lesser of two evils.
2: Yeah, I suppose that I do feel like I have a dog in this fight or skin in the game or whatever analogy we want to use, and that the practice of the work that we do here uh, stems from the idea that. People need this information, and where their advocates to give them the information. Yeah. That, that that being said, Romain, all of those ideals and the Great Western tradition and all of these concepts kind of seem a bit shabby and abstract. If you were to tell me that publishing somebody's name has uh, a proven likelihood to result in lives being lost, so I think that maybe we need to kind of establish what is known. We, we, we throw around terms like contagion effect or copycat killers. Do we have like facts on this? Do we know for a fact whether or not printing somebody's name and publishing their photograph leads to more mass shootings?
3: Yeah, well, I will frame that by saying that it's not completely my field, although I have done some reading in it. And I would say that there is a lot of reputable research by academics, by NGOs, by professional organizations, by the medical community, by the Center for Disease Control, and by journalism schools like Columbia that demonstrates pretty unequivocally that how we report mass shootings can contribute to copycat behavior and to contagion and to generalized imitation. You know, for example, uh, I read a statistic that said that more than half of people who commit mass shootings have made reference either in their writings or in conversations to other previous mass shooters, so we know that people are affected by what they see. Um, this idea of the of the of the uh, contagion is a metaphor that's borrowed from epidemiology, and it suggests when an event happens, it can spread. Right, and it looks like the time frame for the spread is just under two weeks. So the likelihood or the predictability that a that one mass shooting will lead to another within about two weeks is more likely than not. But, but given that we're saying that it's more likely, Hmm. Okay. But are there steps that we could take to minimize that? Yes, probably there are. And, and this idea of what they call the generalized imitation, which is a kind of a fancy word. It comes from psych literature and the psych literature suggests that there are reasons why people, Imitate other people's behavior. So when we name them, we are, we are in fact making their names and their photographs notorious or providing them with a kind of publicity. The more behavior details we give, there's a lot of research that shows that people tend to want to copy people who they perceive to be like them. So say, for example, we say that the shooter was bullied or has a history of being bullied, then that sets up the possibility for someone to say, oh, well, I've been bullied and this is a possible outcome for the way that I've, I've been treated. Maybe I, maybe I, you know, I can relate to this. It's not that media choose to detail these events. We think we're examining the why and perhaps some of the how that we feel an obligation to do for our, for our publics. But in the course of doing that, we can inadvertently suggest to people that this is a, a behavior that gets a kind of reward because media coverage is a kind of reward. Front page coverage is a reward for some people.
2: I'm just trying to sort my way through this because it's such a hard thing to measure.
3: It is a hard thing to measure. And I guess, again, it comes back to this, this idea of a balance. And while I grew up in the same tradition that you did, and I, I'm i educated in the same tradition that you've been, and I think if I were to, to feel a kind of a, you know, that I did have a dog in the fight, I find other people's decisions not to name, for example, really alien and foreign, and and in some respects hard to get my my head around. But the downside of all of this is the is the actual media model that we have in our countries, which is a capitalist one, right? We we have largely media that is for profit, and there is also a lot of research that shows that people say they don't want to hear the grisly details, but what gets clicks and what gets downloaded. Are all of the most gory grisly uh, macabre stuff that is maybe unfit to print, so on the one hand, we have journalists who feel they have a duty to inform are very are professionals and understand their ethical obligations and that they need to provide their public with information that they need to know, not just information to satisfy curiosity or a prurient interest, but on the other hand, there is a temptation. For journalists as well as for news organizations to print a lot of explicit stuff because that's how you fund your model.
2: I mean, this is very complicated stuff, and I don't want to pretend, uh, feign any kind of ignorance or, or, or naivete around it. On the one hand, you know, we we can kind of like um, question the methodologies of how, like, you know, I, and I do wonder. I wonder when they're when they're counting copycats or contagion. It's based on the fact that a mass shooter has uh, some literature or has been reading about a previous or in their manifesto mentions other shooters and they want to kill more people than the last person and you conclude from that that this was inspired i suppose that language is accurate maybe it was inspired you don't know that they wouldn't have done it anyhow and uh no you don't right but and it you isn't don't, no. just
3: literature i mean there is a, there's a whole subculture of people who lurk on the dark web one of the women that we interviewed when we were in germany had gone undercover so to speak and had infiltrated some of these talk groups for her own PhD dissertation, and she was really shocked by the ways in which these this this group were largely feeding off each other and valorizing and talking in in pretty disturbing detail about what aspects of various high profile killings they wanted to uh, they wanted to reenact or they wanted to borrow. I guess again we have to balance. Is it worth naming someone and showing photographs and being explicit if that causes even one uh, copycat? I don't know. What about if we try to, to come up with some middle ground, which I think, in all fairness, is what our Canadian media have been have been trying to do? Even in Kathy English's column last week when she spoke about the star's decision not to, quote-unquote, hide the name from its audience— uh, that column itself didn't name the guy
2: it's it's sort of the the route that we've taken uh, his name has been mentioned uh in, in our podcasts but it hasn't been mentioned in this one yet and and maybe maybe the middle ground is the way to go to make the case for why you should name him beyond just the basics of like informing the public uh the case has been made by uh, crime reporter adrian humphreys and robin Urbach and others uh that when you withhold information there's already so much distrust about the media you create a, an information vacuum and people can fill that with whatever they want. They they can first of all you're you're creating a situation where people can say, well, what else isn't the media telling us? Essentially, if you don't say who done it, you've created a who done it. You know, you create anytime you don't name the murder, you've created a murder mystery. So I think that omitting right. the, the name entirely is almost like inviting this uh, cottage industry of speculation and conspiracy theorists to come in and basically claim a tragedy for whatever political or, you know, just chaos spreading uh, objective they might have.
3: Yeah, I w- I wouldn't disagree with that, but again, I'd say it's a question of balance. Um, and there have been instances in in other parts of the world where, so for example, in Germany, where they routinely don't name persons accused or in some cases convicted of serious crime, there was a pretty and now a pretty notorious incident. Um, what a year, I guess, after maybe less than a year after Angela Merkel had opened the opened the, the doors to a million immigrants. And there were allegations in the 2015 to 2016 New Year's Eve incident that a number of German women had been sexually assaulted by persons unknown, although it appeared as if a number of those persons unknown were uh, immigrants. So the mainstream reputable press in Germany did not name the ethnicity of the persons accused, Mm -hmm. and because that is their policy, generally they won't name ethnicity unless it's of some relevance to the story. But what happened was social media picked up on this, and they turned around and accused mainstream press of siding with the government, of playing to a left-wing agenda. In the light of that, Germany has changed its policies. It, it's not law not to name ethnicity, but it, but it used to be more frowned upon than it is. And now the press code for Germany suggests that ethnicity can be named if it's in the public interest. So I think, you know, that term in the public interest is one that we use here, both to justify the release of legitimate information, and to cover our butts when maybe it's less legitimate. Oh, come on, it's the public's right to know. Well, I don't know that we can abdicate all of our responsibility on that front. I'm
2: glad that you bring up issues of ethnicity, because, you know, this this reporting does not exist in a vacuum of larger po- political issues. You know, the no notoriety movement's been around for a while, and it's interesting to look at the case of uh, Anderson Cooper, who was one of the, I think, early big media figures to uh, kind of sign on to not name shooters. And uh, this goes back, you know, in 2015, he, he was saying, I'm not going to name uh, school shooters, I'm not going to name mass shooters. And then there was the San Bernardino Shooting in which uh, CNN did name and show photographs uh, of of the perpetrators. Of, of that shooting and CNN explained that they said things were a bit different in our coverage last week of San Bernardino, because very early on it was clear this shooting could be an act of terrorism, which is different than the shootings we've seen in the past of lone gunmen in many cases, just looking to kill and for personal notoriety as an act of terror. There are questions of associates and possible cells. So showing pictures and naming names is important in that regard as it might help law enforcement. So that's the distinction. That's why we showed the pictures. Now, so they're creating these buckets, you know, a lone gunman. Uh, we're not going to name. And who are we talking about? You know, often we're talking about like a white teenager in a high school who's looking for notoriety. We're not going to name him. Uh, but if they if the shooters are, are, are brown or seem to be ideologically driven, we're going to call that terrorism. And then it's like a, a different sort of a news story where the public needs to know who did it because there's a political implication. The case could mm-hmm. easily be made that this Nova Scotia shooter was a terrorist uh, ma- 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 uh, mass shooter who is driven by a misogynistic ideology. Uh, and we, and and we create these different categories, you know, um, that I think reflect well, and the vast
3: majority, the vast majority of mass shooters are, are white middle-class guys, you know, that is, that is the case. Um, and, and all of us do need to think about why we name ethnicity and what that implies. And, um, and it's, it's a, it's another shade and another level of this conversation that's worth having.
2: I still want to get as much clarity as I can on this question of data. Anderson Cooper, it was 2015 where he stopped naming school shooters. Uh, have we seen that when journalists stop naming shooters, there is a decrease in the frequency of mass shootings? Is there any, is there any clarity we have on that?
3: Well, I don't have any clarity on that. There may be researchers who have uh, looked at more specific and more recent material
2: I mean, this was 2015 when Anderson Cooper was, was saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. I think that in 2018, it was like a record in the States. They had like a school shooting every week. And I I can't name you any of those killers. I, I, I It yeah. feels like we but haven't to be been fair. naming those shooters. Like at the same time that those shootings became more and more frequent, uh, the identities and the biographies of the shooters kind of got wiped from from coverage.
3: Yeah, sort of, except, you know, mainstream media coverage is one aspect of a very big, and moving jigsaw puzzle coverage and types of coverage of school shootings has changed radically since you know the early 2000s when the internet and social media took off but i would also like to pick up on on whether and to what extent the details of a perpetrator's life are relevant i would not make the argument that the details are not relevant but there are ways to tell a story that don't include all the specifics so let me just swap that around a little bit and say, you know, like in a place like like the Netherlands, where people are not routinely identified, that doesn't mean that you still wouldn't know the name of this person, maybe also his ethnicity, if that was relevant to the story, that he'd had kind moments where he, you know, gave free dentures to people in need, um, that he had a problematic history with, with women, that there'd been some evidence of, of problems in the past. Um, maybe then we wouldn't focus so much on the specifics to the point where where we other people, where we abdicate our community responsibility because because murderers are not created in a vacuum, there is a tendency when we focus on these details to see people who commit crimes as at least outliers, if not outright human monsters. And once we once we frame them like that, then it's very easy for us to wash our hands and to say, you know, this has nothing to do with us. That person really isn't like me or anyone I know. I'm going to wipe my hands of it. He's going to be exorciated from the community and that's the end of it. But that also obfuscates that crime is is not, usually doesn't happen because of one particular factor. And so if we remove some of the personal details, might we be able to refocus so that we could have a discussion about the many ways that, say, economics or social history, or education, or institutional oversight has played into the committing of crimes. I mean, not specifically with the Nova Scotia shooter, but more generally. And I, I think that it's perfectly legitimate for media to, to debate on a case-by-case basis whether to name and what that means.
2: It, it, it is, and I I'm, I'm, will back you up 100% on, on opening up those processes to the public. But I want to back up a second here, because the idea... <laughs> sure. The There's always idea.
3: a butt with you, Jesse. I'm ready.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you put forth an idea that I think is just incredibly idealistic, which is essentially that all of this, it's great to have these conversations. It's great to open up the, uh, the, the 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 processes and get people talking about it. But there is sort of a conclusion that you've reached, and it's an idealistic one. And it is that, OK, take the middle path. We will, you know, the name will be there somewhere. The photograph might be there somewhere. We're not going to dwell on it. That's the best way to do it. That's best practices. That's what's sort of being suggested here. And arguably, it's what the Canadian media did in this case. And so the outcome of that it's is... It's not what
3: I'm suggesting. Let me be clear. I am not suggesting that. Again, I'm not defending anyone's practice. I see my job as to outline what the practices are and then explain the reasons that journalists told me they make the decisions that they do. And well, then I draw conclusions about about the cultural values that inform those decisions. I'm suggesting that media, Canadian media, in this particular instance, have themselves made some decisions, maybe um, out of deference to our prime minister, although I doubt that. I think more in deference to more recent movements and public attitudes that have shifted from just talking about perpetrators to covering... The events with an eye not to further traumatizing victims and families and communities, and I'm not saying that's right, wrong, or indifferent, but I think that's the path that I've seen Canadian media take with the Nova Scotia shooter. I'm mean, you're not putting that on me. That's not me. No, hold on. You just described
2: it. Okay, I, 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 sure. If, if you are the objective researcher, you're not advocating any any.
3: Oh uh, stop! I but am you- not a no. Oh, no, let's not. We can have another podcast on objectivity if you want, but you're not—you're not pigeonholing me there. <laughs> I'm not trying.
2: I'm not trying to do anything. I—I'm I, I, merely recognizing that you just uh, moments ago described something that I think is uh, sounds pretty damn good.
0: Okay, I would be that, that, fine
3: with the with the aspirational aspect of that, and if we think that's ideal, then I'd say to you, you don't have much faith in the system that we have. I think that's part of the problem—is that is that a lot of people don't have a belief in Canadians' ability to make to make reasoned rational decisions and, and I think that's selling most folks short. Um, well you're selling like me I short because I'm of not a- citizens- <laughs> I just if like like, like I, to you know journalists. Oh, so go ahead, it's your show. You talk.
2: <laughs> I want, I want no. I, I, if I got you wrong, that that you that you were suggesting that that might be the outcome. Then 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 correct me. But I I, I think that is what was described was that we might have a uh, we might actually finally look at the political and economic uh, factors, the policy factors that that go into crime, and we might sort of elevate from you know the gutter where we just want to know uh, you know all. All of the sexual and violent. I think I got you right. That that's, that that's
3: yeah, sounds pretty You got me right. Do you okay. think I, do, are you suggesting that I'm a Pollyanna? I, I,
2: <laughs> I, I, I'm just suggesting that we shouldn't ignore, like I've seen this from the other perspective, which is the true crime storyteller. Okay. I've, I've, I've been in the role of telling those stories and, uh, you know, this goes back. We can call it uh there's a There certainly is a tradition of tabloid schlock. There's also like Truman Capote in Cold Blood, and there's uh like I, I'm just a realist about how people why people want to know everything they can about this. And I'm not so quick necessarily to decry that as merely um some sort of a ghoulish or prurient thing. I mean people experience the world through narratives and characters and conflict. We want to know how could this have happened? Who did it? Why did they do it? And yeah, we want to know how they did it. You know, we want to know everything about it. And right. I don't necessarily feel like that is bad or that people are wrong. And I even can make
3: the case. Can I tell you a quick story? You may tell me as long a story as you like.
2: My first job in media, I, I was a an intern at Q107, the rock, the classic rock station. Yes. And so I happened to be, like, in the mailroom during that Bernardo and, and Homolka trial. And the the and I think that this is something that I've thought about a lot since because I think the, the Canadian media generally... The, the feeling was because we did not sensationalize that story, because we didn't have cameras in the courtroom, because the details of the videotapes were redacted and were, were kept from the public, we took the high road. I read the transcripts from those videotapes as a teenager uh, who who was snooping in the Q107 mailroom. Wow. They came off the fax machine. And my jaw dropped uh, when I read the descriptions. And I, I couldn't look away. It was that prurient thing of wanting to know all the gory details and reading about how Carla Homolka was an active participant in every step of the way of these grisly murders, that she's absolutely a murderer. And then when she was given her plea deal and was out on the street, my sense of justice was injured in a way that I, I don't know that other members of the public even had an opportunity. Even, and and certainly people were horrified um, that she was given that grant plea. Um, Absolutely. And and, and and I think that some of them don't even know the
3: half of it. Oh, I think that's true. <laughs> okay. So, it, 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 so ultimately, what would your point about, be?
2: I guess my point is just one of that when we don't know there's an injustice uh that that when we don't bear witness to these acts the 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 ability for authorities to let somebody like that walk the streets don't we have a responsibility to bear witness on some level
3: absolutely absolutely you know what you love to throw so many pieces of crap at the wall i have to figure out which ones i want to focus on um <laughs> Really, you and I could have, we could have a chat that would be so long. I, you know, I don't think, I think we have podcasts it. for that intent, but let's, let's, let's back up a little tiny bit. Um, first of all, I think we need to be careful that we're not, we're not blurring the distinction between entertainment and journalism. Journalism is about telling stories, but it's about telling true stories. And I think there's a legitimate debate to be had again around what kinds of details actually matter to the public, and also what kinds of details need to be given in order that the public can bear witness to a particularly horrendous set of circumstances or an act. I can think of another example, which was um, when Colonel Russell Williams, uh, who pleaded guilty, so there was no trial for that man, but all of his um, horrendous behavior was being read out in, in the court. And journalists were tweeting a lot of pretty graphic descriptions. And there were complaints that it was too much. People were saying, why are you telling me this? But the defense was, we need to we need to bear witness to what those victims went through. And we need, if this man ever comes up for parole, to have a public record of what he agrees his crimes were. I would also point to the story of of the little eight-year-old girl who was kidnapped in Woodstock, Tori Stafford, mm-hmm. in 2009. And she was abducted and assaulted and murdered by Terry Lynn McClintock and Michael Rafferty. And um, as you no doubt know, the, the initial... We we tried people separately. They were tried separately. So the judge invoked a publication ban, initially on virtually everything to do with Terry McClintock's guilty plea. Um, media went to court that ban was overturned, partially overturned in December. So some information came out, but basically the public had to wait three years to hear the details of how Tory Stafford died. When when those details were said in open court at Michael Rafferty's trial. Now, when some of that material was made public, Rosie DeMono, a columnist for the Toronto Star, wrote a column that again detailed the in graphic, in very graphic language, what Tory Stafford had suffered. And people were appalled and people complained to the star that this was too much. And Rosie demano said, and I and I think it goes to your point, listen, it's the very least we can do as citizens in a community to bear witness to what this child suffered. It is so small a price to pay compared to Tori's own suffering and that of her family that we owe her this. And I, I wouldn't disagree with that perspective. Um, I'd also, though, say that, that journalism is different than true crime, And when we get too far down that road, there is research that shows that citizens want to trust media, but they feel that when people stray too far into opinion and not enough and don't bolster with enough facts, that they feel like they're being told a story rather than that they're being told about a true happening
2: you bring up Rosie D'Amato and I think that along with the late Christy Blatchford, you're talking about two journalists who concurrently embodied public advocacy. They were our eyes uh, in in, in the courtroom. Uh, I think they saw the Christy Blatchford saw herself as a sort of a victim's rights uh, representative in certain ways. And Rosie as as you put it, articulating the least that we can do for a victim like that. At the same time, both of them absolutely sensationalized at, at certain points in their career. Absolutely as crime reporter. I mean, if you want to have steady employment in the terrible field of journalism, be a uh, evocative courtroom reporter of murder trials. You know, they're like- they're Well,
3: I, you know, I think that's that's 100% true. Um, and when I did some research for an earlier book about covering Canadian crime, I interviewed Bert Bruiser, who was the media lawyer for the Toronto Star. Mm-hmm. And he said to me that um, the way that the Bernardo trial was covered by Blatchford and De Mano specifically, forever changed the way that crime coverage is done here in Canada. Because Bernardo had no reputation to protect, um, there really wasn't much that needed to be held back in that instance. And De Mano and Blatchford went way past uh, the line where we could say there was any presumption of innocence. Um, because he didn't, no one presumed he was innocent. There was no reputation to protect. He'd already admitted that he was a scarborough rapist uh but but once that cat is out of the bag, um I think you could you could cite a lot of instances of court reporting that has gone over the line and has implied or impugned guilt and and that is a problem, and journalists need to be vigilant about that so that you know institutions like the courts don't feel like they need to to manage journalists. I I think journalists themselves ought to do a good job of managing themselves. That's, that's the ideal.
2: Ultimately, and and, and maybe this is the subject for another conversation. I wonder about the role of the audience, the reader asking themselves these questions on that level of, of reception of this. Why do I need to know this? Why am I reading this? Why am I reading the hundredth true crime book or listening to the thousandth uh, Grizzly true crime podcast uh, how much of this do I need to know and, and what am I hoping to get out of this? You know, I I, I hope we're kind of getting there. And, I, and I, I actually would make the case that as we are kind of like at kind of peak true crime in the, you know, and, and you, I think you're trying to create a distinction that journalism and true crime are two different things. Well, the best true crime uh, documentaries and docuseries and podcasts out there are works of journalism. And I, I I guess I'd say that, like, as we're kind of more mired in this sort of stuff than ever before, I'm seeing more work that actually does care about the ethics of of what why it's doing what it's doing and placing it in a political context and even if it's just uh, when they don't when it's Tiger King endless articles written after the fact of people getting into the details and trying to figure out how things were done improperly or who it was unfair to it seems like there is an appetite for the story behind the story people are not just looking for the, the you know the, the the bloody entertainment
3: there is a you know a pretty legit reason I think why people are so fascinated with crime and you're right it's it's got a history that's as long as that of human civilization. Evil or people people turning bad in quotation marks is a is a source of real fascination. It's a it's a big part of what it means to be human. There's a an American I think he's a sociologist who writes about about readers reading crime as what they, he calls their daily moral workout. So you you know you indulge in a little bit of uh, a crime reading because it's entertaining. But it also gives you a way to test your own values, your own borders, your own limitations against other people in your community. And and in some instances, maybe that reporting also opens up into a seam of underlying social responsibility. So where you might say, Oh, well, there's a you know, there's an institutional flaw here, or there's a tear in the social fabric, or maybe it's just a case of boy, that was such a dumb mistake. I can't believe that that, you know, bank robber when he went to went to stick up the teller, actually signed and wrote his own name on the deposit slip where he was also asking her to hand over all the cash. You know, there's yeah. something kind of enjoyable in, in thinking to yourself, oh well, boy, I'd never be that dumb. But there are also serious questions about how we decide who belongs in our community or whether we believe in, 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 um, in rehabilitation or resocialization. whether we think if someone makes a mistake uh, and commits a crime that should make them completely unable to ever rejoin society again. You know, I, I think those are serious discussions, but again, ones that are worth having. <laughs>
2: I mean, we're wrestling with eternal themes here. Like it's it's biblical. Like, <laughs> like, where do it's we begin? It's biblical to name or not to name, to, to, to unname someone, to wipe someone's name. You know, from from uh-huh. the, the these these are big things from the so, Book of
3: Life. They're... They are all really big themes. I mean, who wouldn't want to spend ten or more years of their life doing that, right?
2: That's your Canada land reminder that we need your support like never before and you can get ad free podcasts when you do support us for five bucks a month canadian it's so easy just click on the link in your show notes or go to slash join you'll get ad free podcasts immediately we are on twitter at canadaland our website is canadalandshow.com where we're publishing news stories we just broke the news about Gian Gameshi's most recent comeback attempt. It's another podcast. We can read about that on our site. Kasia Mihailović is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.